0: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. On today's episode, I'm joined by a really tremendous panel, political strategist and an expert in demographics and Latino politics, a co-founder and former advisor to The Lincoln Project, and a former political director of the California Republican Party, our good friend Mike Madrid. Mike, as always, it's good to see you. It's good to see
1: you too, especially with that long intro. Thanks.
0: (laughs) Also (laughs) returning to the Roundup is Theron Johnson, a political strategist and consultant who's worked for Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, Congressman John Lewis, and President Barack Obama. Theron, thank you for coming back.
2: Good. It's so good to be back with you guys.
0: And rounding out our panel today and a friend of the roundup is the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, co-founder and former advisor to the Lincoln Project, Jennifer Horn. Jennifer, it's good to have you on again.
3: I'm really excited to be here today. And I have to say, I'm kind of nervous being on with Theron. This is the first for me. (laughs) (laughs) Ron, I don't know if you know this. He's really, really smart.
0: He's really smart. (laughs) It's been a busy week, and so in today's episode, we're going to discuss David Perdue's announcement that he's considering another run for the Senate in 2022, and we'll update you on a story about absentee voting laws we've been following closely, which could have an impact on elections moving forward. But first, I want to talk about this Gallup poll. So Gallup released a poll on Monday showing that 63% of Republicans think a new party is needed, which is a tectonic shift from when only 40% of Republicans felt that way when the same question was asked in September of last year, so roughly six months ago. It's also worth noting that 70% of Republicans want Trump to remain as leader of the party, and 40% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents want the party to become, I quote, more conservative. Mike, can you start by helping us understand what this data will mean for the republican party
1: sure it's not good let me just start from the the top uh top lines here look those people that want a new party again are saying that the republican party has become too much of a of a sellout basically it's not standing up strong enough for what they want are and want to believe in where the direction they want to head so um when, when we have been saying for the past couple of years that the republican party is donald trump's party This validates all of that. This is moving in that direction. And the question is going to be how many people are going to finally stand up and be left in its wake. What this polling suggests at this moment in time is it's potentially at least one in four Republican voters. Now, let's put this in context. This is not terribly dissimilar to the data that we were finding a year ago when we got started with the Lincoln Project endeavors and efforts. And as any political professional will tell you, even though these chasms exist and they remain in the throes of a political campaign, the likelihood of Republicans rallying back to their candidate is extraordinarily high. Mm -hmm. So it's important to remember that while these fissures remain, it does not necessarily mean we are on the precipice of a massive crack up in the GOP base at this time. I do believe that we are going to continue to see this drip, drip, drip effect that, you know, I, I kind of you know push that out on Twitter every time a Republican office holder yeah. at the state level leaves. It's just another person leaving. So a, a, a big Republican name left uh, the state legislature uh, today in Arkansas, for example. This is going to continue as people start to break the fever, realize that Trumpism is not what classical conservatism was or even what republicanism has been. Um, it's a little too late now to salvage the brand. It's it's essentially over. Mm-hmm. But what we are witnessing is a devolution of a political party into uh, this peculiar social faction, which yeah. um, is affecting our politics. But this is not going to be able to be reconstituted under the GOP. There's going to have to be something new, whether it's going to be a faction of the party or whether it's going to be an entirely new party will remain to be seen. I think it's going to take years to play out. But I do believe we are witnessing the devolution of the Republican Party. So I have one
0: follow-up question to that, which is that Gallup used more conservative. But based on the discussion that we had last week, can you get into, you know, the different, like supporting Trump, which is what 70% of these respondents said they want him to remain leader and wanting to be more conservative. It's essentially an oxymoronic position, it would seem.
1: Yeah and there's look there's two ways to understand the vernacular of the politics we talk about. I think people like us who understand what conservatism genuinely means from a philosophical standpoint have a very firm understanding of the principles behind which we've joined the Republican Party years ago. When 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 the media or or general activists talk about conservatism, they equate that directly with republicanism. Those are now two mm-hmm. completely different things but they're conflated because that's the way we that's just our common parlance, it's the way we talk about them. So they're not looking for a more conservative party. They're really looking for a more Trumpy party. They're looking for a more yeah. nationalist party. They're looking for a party that's driven more by this white grievance politics, this blame, this this uh, populism that has uh, metastasized under Donald Trump. And that's what they're saying is, we don't want to go back. We, just, we like this. Mm-hmm. We like yeah. the anger. We like the, the outrage. We don't want science or facts we want an easy explanation because it gives me a, a, a something to, to rally around literally and find some fulfillment and explanation for my life without having to dig too deep uh, a lot of people do not want to come back from that they will go to their graves with that and this is an important point too and i'll end with well, this cuz it worked for them it not only did it work yeah it it still works for a lot of right. them and so like a lot of these cult of personalities when you look historically Um, A lot of these cults of personalities and failed dictators and authoritarian, uh, you know, they will have these cults of personalities until they're dead. There will be, you know, tributes at their gravestones. There will be people who visit them for a very, very long time because it's not about the ideology. It's not about the philosophy of government. It's about the individual and the personality and what he was able to capture at this moment in time.
0: So there are Trump Republicans who want a new party that is more fervent in its support and defense of the former president. And there are Republicans who are seemingly desperate to move on from the former president. And this divide is illustrated perfectly by the growing rift between Donald Trump and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. So earlier this week, Donald Trump released a statement attacking Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, which essentially read like a classic Donald Trump Twitter thread. The former president urged his party to ditch McConnell called him weak, blamed him for losing the election, fired back at him for blaming Trump for the insurrection. Jennifer, how should we be thinking about the divisions within the Republican leadership and the party itself? And what impact do you think these fights could have on the country as a whole?
3: Yes, uh, Donald Trump called um, the Republican Party to ditch Mitch, essentially. (laughs) I'm surprised surprised he didn't hashtag ditch Mitch. And, and and to back to the very beginning of what um Mike just said in your fo- you know to answer your follow-up question, we when he you know looked at this as an oxymoronic um operation, I, I think you can drop the oxy. This is just moronic. This and, and that goes to what you're just asked me as well. These people are genuinely moronic. The the thing that you have to understand is that there's not a big rift in the Republican Party. There's a small, there's a little rift in within the Republican Party right now. The majority of people, you know, it, it's fantastic that a, a legislator from a southern a legislator from a, a southern state um, left the party, but he's one out of thousands of elected Republicans across the country. They are with Trump. Like we should not. We should not um, try to gloss over. The Republican Party is completely with Trump. One person here, one person there. But you have to remember those numbers you just read to us, 70%. I've said this before in conversation with you and Mike and and in other places. um, As long as the people who are voting Republican the people, uh, the people that make up the state committees, the county committees, the town committees, the people that engage in primaries, as long as those people are with Trump, then the party belongs to Trump. That, you know, That's it. And as long as those people are with Trump, then the majority of the folks that are elected to hold office anywhere under the R are going to be with Trump. So to Mike's point, this idea of either a new party or, you know, a a, a you know, a, a group within the party. I genuinely don't think that you can save the Republican Party as it exists today. I think there has to be a movement outside of the party. And whether or not the party eventually comes to embrace that movement or it just completely falls apart over the next four or five, six election cycles and slowly disappears, I don't know. But that 70% you're talking about, that is not a a poll of the people who serve in Congress. Those are Americans who are voting. As long as they're holding that position, then the Republican Party is lost.
0: So I want to look at the state of the Democratic Party now, Darren. So looking at this data, only 46% of Democrats favor creating a third party. And they're are obviously policy differences within the Democratic Party, but I don't think that you can equate the differences within the Democratic Party with what's going on in the Republican caucus and the party. It seems to me that there are really policy debates going on with among Democrats, but there's generally solid agreement about the fundamental structure of American democracy, which is which seems to be what the Republican Party is splitting over. So, can you help us think through how that contrast in the intra party debates, could impact elections?
2: Well, I think the most important thing for Democrats is that not only the Democrats, but also the country elected uh, Joe Biden as the president. And what that did, it automatically changed sort of the culture and the tone in which the um, federal government sort of approached these issues. I mean, if you look at what President Biden is doing already, he's focusing primarily on this deadly pandemic uh, and trying to get these vaccines um, administered in states all across the country. But one of the things that I think we also have to have a robust conversation about is really this whole notion of has America really benefited from a two-party system. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at every comparable democracy, they have multiple political parties. And it's very rare that any party has a total majority. So they have to make coalitions and they have to basically be aligned when it comes to ideology and to issues. And so I think ultimately what I'm very proud of is that I think that President Biden is a moderate Democrat who ran as a moderate Democrat and I think he will govern this country for all Americans. Yes, there will be opportunities for him to push a progressive agenda that many of, the, of whom in my party uh, want to see him do very soon. But I think he will find those rare opportunities, and they look very rare right now, to actually work in a bipartisan manner to work with Republicans to ultimately do what's right for the American people.
0: Jennifer?
3: I, I think he's exactly right. there's a couple things that I think of as I listen to him um, answer there, um, by, by increasing the number of political parties in our country, and I don't know what the magic number is, you know, that point about forcing people to build coalitions, forcing those who are elected to lead and to represent us to build coalition amongst themselves is a really key point, because we are where we are today, because with only two major influential parties, we have government that believes its purpose is to oppose each other. And the people are completely out of the equation. The people, you know, have nothing to do with it. And then I've been thinking about the whole idea of democracy over the last few weeks. And the one, one of the, the foundational cornerstones of democracy is the idea that the people have a voice. You can't, the people cannot have a voice. Enough of the people, all of the people cannot have a voice with only two Influential parties with only two major parties. We are 350 million people strong. And when we what what we have seen happen in the last four years, the last year, even more so to the Republican Party is a direct result of the, in my opinion, of the party system being broken in this country.
0: Mike, I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in here before we move on to the next topic, because this is something we've talked a lot about. I know we're going to keep talking about it in future episodes, but just sort of to put a bow on this part of the conversation.
1: Well, I take a slightly different view of this. and I've been looking at this for a long time. I do believe that the two-party system is broken. There's no question about it. There's just too much evidence. The challenge in the United States is that the parties are basically calcified institutions that are cemented into literally the framework of how we operate at a state level. It's virtually impossible to begin a third-party movement. Now, having said that, it it is possible. I said Virtually impossible means there is a chance, right? You're telling me there's a chance. Mm -hmm. There is a possibility to do it, but it would take a lot of money, a lot of intensity, a lot of focus, and a lot of people. Um, I think most of those are probably on the table right now. But I also don't believe that moving towards a parliamentary or multi-party system is where this is all headed. So so give me a quick second to explain how I think this is going. I believe that we're actually heading to a place where George Washington actually um, advised us, which is to stay away from parties entirely, because they ultimately are uh, challenging and problematic. And I believe that as society kind of becomes more technologically advanced, and as we start to realize the ability to have more of our own voice heard, the idea of a representative democracy is going to become less interesting to people. we're not going to like it anymore, right? If I'm a Texan, do I really want Ted Cruz deciding everything for me anymore when I can have any type of cereal I want delivered by any type of delivery company I want at any hour of the day that I want? It is very odd to turn over these filters that were very important to the founders 250 years ago to have people decide for them. So what does that all mean? I believe we are going to have a lot more direct democracy. I think you are starting to see that in the states where people are going to start choosing and demanding to be part of the governance process in a way that they have not been before. I think that also raises some some challenging and troubling questions that the Federalist Papers were written to kind of address with mob rule. But I don't think that technology is going to allow us to just say, oh, I'm going to vote for a Republican and let them decide for me or a Democrat and let them decide for me. I actually think we are moving towards the original vision of what the founders imagined, which was no parties. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that parties, as they start to uh, pop up, I think the the, phase, the process we get there is multi-parties. But again, I think it's a devolutionary process where people start to ultimately say, these parties are meaningless anyway. What are you running for? How do you organize your own as a candidate? How do you organize yourself online? What are your interests? And then how does that information flow to me the way it's already happening on social media with the right. ubiquitousness of technology? And so in many ways... You know, we're getting, democracy may get back to what the founders originally intended 250 years ago, and I think we'll begin to start asking some of those questions uh, that they were originally asking in the Federalist Papers, is how can, can this actually work? Can this crazy contraption that we're building actually function? What we know now is after 250 years, it may have run its course under this system that George Washington, President Washington, our first president, advised us against.
0: I think your point about technology and how essentially everything is on demand now is really, really important. I know we're going to come back to this, but it seems like government is one of the last domains that is not available on demand and that is not immediately responsive to the inputs of its primary customers, constituents, right? It's just not.
1: I think that's very well put.
0: So let's talk about the Georgia Senate now. On Tuesday, former U.S. Senator from Georgia, David Perdue, announced that he's considering another run for the Senate, this time for the other Georgia Senate seat now held by Reverend Raphael Warnock. And Perdue just lost in the January runoff to John Ossoff. In the announcement he tweeted, Perdue asserted that Georgia's newly elected senators, Quote, do not fairly represent most Georgians, end quote. And his evidence for this is that John Ossoff didn't receive more than 50% of the votes in the November election. Conveniently, Perdue left out the fact that he also didn't win 50% of the votes in either the November election or the runoff. So, therein we're now about six weeks out from the runoff election. Uh, Purdue is implying that he represents Georgia better than the senators who were just elected to represent Georgia. He also called Ossoff and Warnock two of the most radically liberal individuals to ever occupy a seat on the hallowed floor of the United States Senate. And I think we all remember Kelly Leffler's attempts to paint Warnock as a radical liberal in their debate. So with that backdrop, can you help us think about how well Purdue understands how Georgians are feeling about their newly elected senators?
2: Well, it was very interesting, Ron, and you may remember um, when you guys, we were all together last before the uh, election and even after the historic election in Georgia, you know, this then Senator David Perdue and John Ossoff race was the one that I felt very comfortable that John Ossoff was going to win. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people thought that Senator Perdue being a six year incumbent, um, in Georgia, um, would, you know, be very, very difficult to beat. And, and Senator Ossoff, who ran unsuccessfully before in Georgia for a special election for a congressional seat, uh, just ran a fantastic campaign. And, you know, and for our listeners, let's just remind them six years ago, um, it, it was it was David Perdue who sort of launched his U.S. Senate campaign as the original outsider. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't become this sort of staunch Trump supporter until probably later on in his six-year tenure when um, President Trump was elected. Right. But how do we feel in Georgia about Senator Perdue? Well, I'll let you in on a little secret. You know, we have been hearing rumors a long time that Senator Perdue was very, very – um, saddened and very upset uh, from the election results. Uh, he really thought that he was going to get reelected. And there was a lot of talk about how he maybe should not have even been in a runoff had there not been a libertarian in the uh, election in November in Georgia, which uh, both candidates, uh, Senator Purdue and then John Ossoff, candidate John Ossoff, failed to get 50%. So fast forward, Senator Ossoff and Senator Warnock are off to a fantastic start. And that whole radical liberal uh, trash talk <laughs> that you know he wants to put back out there, people in Georgia, we got inundated with that. I mean, we're talking a billion dollars yeah. in advertisement telling oh, us how radically yeah. liberal uh, these two Senate candidates were. And, they, and, and they're not. Uh, but the people of Georgia still elected them. However, be that as it may, David Perdue will be a serious contender. Um, he has the likelihood of maybe clearing the Republican fill uh, in this U.S. Senate race if he decides to go through it, Ron. And I think if you really kind of look at his statement, it was sort of weak sauce. It Mm -hmm. wasn't really a Mm -hmm. sort of aggressive, hey, I'm ready to get back out here and fight for the people of Georgia. But also what's going on in Georgia is that you have a very fractured, uh, divided Georgia GOP where I believe That there may may be a man or woman who may emerge as sort of a new Republican outsider in Georgia that may challenge David Perdue um, for the Republican uh, nomination for the U.S. Senate. And so ultimately... I think that Senator Warnock and Senator uh, Ossoff are, are off to a great start. They're communicating with voters. They're already being put in leadership positions with Leader Schumer, giving them some opportunities to bring resources back to Georgia. They're talking about vaccines. They're talking about relief for the people of Georgia as far as economic prosperity. And so ultimately, I think that um, we'll be fine. I think Senator Warnock is already in campaign mode because he'll be up for the election in two years.
0: Right. So, and you're right. His statement, Purdue's statement, just to me sounded bitter. That's what that, mm-hmm. that's what came across. So, Jennifer, you know, Purdue has been under our magnifying glass before for his frequent stock trades while he was in office. Mm-hmm. Um, how should we be thinking about his motives here? How are you thinking about his motives?
3: Well, there are a couple of things. This is a guy who wants to clear the field so that he can be the guy, so that. Everybody, it's kind of a just let everybody in the party. All you, all you people who think you're sitting on the bench and your turn's coming up, you know, d- don't start, don't start warming up just yet because this is this. I'm the guy. He's trying to clear the field. Um, it will not be successful. I, I can almost guarantee you that he will have at least one primary opponent who is more Trumpy than you can imagine. Somebody being that there's going to be somebody who comes forward and says, "I'm actually the Trump guy." Um, that's number one, and there'll probably be somebody in the other direction as well. Uh, back in 2016, in New Hampshire, uh, incumbent U.S. Senator Kelly Ayotte lost uh, uh, her reelection bid by about a thousand votes. There was an unknown Libertarian candidate on the ballot who got 17,000 votes. We're a small state; 17,000 votes is a lot of votes, uh, and, and clearly, more than made the difference. That goes back to our conversation a couple of minutes ago about the parties and how it broke. 17,000 people. Kelly Ayotte was well-known. She did a good job. She had decent approval ratings. 17,000 people simply rejected outright the idea of either of the two, um, the two major candidates without having any knowledge at all of who this third guy was. So I think that is an indictment of the party system in and of itself. And you're going to continue. And so just like they talked about, uh, just like Darren was talking about down in Georgia, but it was really important when he when these guys trying to paint Ossoff and Warnock as radical liberals, radical this, radical that. I will say that one of the things I really regret from my tenure as chairman in New Hampshire, because I I say all the time I'm proud of what I accomplished. I was good, I was good at the job. I did it well. I accomplished what we set out to accomplish. And you know, ninety percent of the time, I regret the degree to which um, I just conducted myself like everybody else in politics, using words like radical. That is that is such a party word. Both sides use it to describe the other. Radical conservative, radical liberal. What we saw happen on January 6th, that's radical. That's people who have been radicalized. And I think that one of the reasons that we don't see as, you know, that, that the Senate is able to get away with letting that go without consequence is that to some degree we've become numb to language and we've become numb to, you know, what this really means. Both people across America from both sides looked at it and said, oh, it's politics. You know, they're the bad guys. They're the bad guys. That was a case of people being radicalized. John Ossoff and uh, Senator Warnock, they are not radicals. They are not radicals. And we need to, and, and at least for me personally, we need to really start examining the language that we use and how we use it.
0: So, Mike, we're witnessing some changes right now in how Georgia is voting. And we've seen them play out in the presidential election and in the runoffs. But obviously, Trump won't be on the ballot in 2022. So what impact could that have on Purdue's chances of winning?
1: You said two very important things right there that we need to pay attention to. And let me address the easiest one first, which is you said Trump is not on the ballot. Right. What we have found during the Trump era is when Trump is not on the ballot, the model uh, for our voter, our voter models for our polling universes are entirely accurate because we do not see the overperformance of non-college educated white voters voting for him. No matter how much he has gone down and tried to say, vote for the Republicans down ticket, they were never able to get the same turnout as they were when he was on the ballot. It's why the polling was off in 16 and in 20 and favored him both times. Polling was entirely accurate in both the 2018 midterms and in the Georgia special election. A very important point to point. It's a unique phenomenon, at least as far as I have seen it. The second is I'm a big believer in trend lines. It's easy for us to kind of look at each race individually. But if you look at Georgia, and Theron can speak to this much better than I can, Georgia has been moving in this direction for a long time, okay? Uh, The demographics just say this is, this, Georgia is not what people, you know, thought of what Georgia was 30 years ago. It has been moving in this direction for at least a decade, probably longer. And the culmination of a number of demographic events, including the Trump phenomenon, brought us to 2020. When Stacey Abrams won that race when she ran, okay? Th- this is not, like, these are not one off This is not just some weird thing that happened. This trend line has been moving in this direction. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think Georgia's that competitive anymore. I mean, they're going to mm. be close races for a while. But when you saw the, the, the strong performance of black voters in Georgia in a January special election, um, overperforming the model, again, against non-college-educated rural whites, Things have changed. Now, there's got to be a lot of work to sustain that. But when you start playing the the same old songs that the Republican parties are are playing with the same old candidates, when things have, have moved foundationally, you're fighting against the trend line that you're already losing. So yeah. that that tells me, and again, it's not just Georgia, folks. This is Texas and North Carolina and other states, okay? Incidentally, a lot of the Great Lakes and and Midwest states are moving in a more Trumpy direction, by the way. But, but but for the moment, the Sunbelt states are moving and have been for some time in this direction. You can argue that Trump stepped on the accelerator, made it happen faster. Fine, that may be true, but it is happening. And so you have to be mindful that demography drives so much of this discussion. We love the the, the, the moment by moment, the play by play, the what's happening. What did this candidate say? What did that candidate say or do? Um, but the reality is, if you step back and look at it from a 30,000 foot level, this is all entirely predictable, at least from my perspective. Mm-hmm.
0: There and you were nodding there a couple of times.
2: They might hit on some some really good points, and and I want to also uh, echo on, on something earlier uh, that that Jennifer said, and that is that uh, David Perdue. We got to remember, Ron. This is a, a former U.S. senator who refused to debate John Ossoff.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: just didn't show up. Uh, I mean, and, and, and that was baffling to me. And I went on the record and I said, hey, you know, that's going to be a mistake. But But to Mike's point about demographically, we have been a blue state. The challenge had been always for us being able to register enough voters, prevent them from being purged off the list, and then ultimately teach them and educate them on how they can vote by mail and vote by absentee ballot, and also not be turned away with a lot of the voter irregularities that we've seen previously at the voting booth when it came to voting. And so I just think that, you know, Mike made a good point that this was something that it was along the trend line for many years. You know, we lost in 2002 when then Democratic Governor Roy Barnes was an incumbent running for reelection with $22 $22 million in loss to a then state senator who, uh, Sonny Perdue, who had switched parties, by the way, who was a Democrat who switched to the Republican Party and, and won. And so we've been working towards this moment in Georgia now for 18 years. Uh, and, <sighs> you know, it's finally come to fruition.
0: So now that we're all thinking about the 2022 Senate race uh, in Georgia, I want to turn back to a story we talked about a couple of weeks ago because it could have a major impact on that election. So there were two bills that advanced through a Georgia State Senate subcommittee that would make it harder to vote absentee in upcoming elections. And currently, Georgia law allows any registered voter to cast an absentee ballot. But one of these bills would limit absentee voting to people who are over 75 have a physical disability, or are out of town on election day, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And the other bill we're really following would require voters to submit a photocopy of their ID, or a driver's license number, or other state ID number when they request an absentee ballot. So, Theron, I know that, you know, Georgia's in session right now. I know you're paying close attention to it and we're watching these bills move through the legislature almost 2 years before Georgia votes for a senator and a governor. So, can you help us understand, you know, how laws like this can impact the outcome of those elections and and you know, maybe what you're watching right now, but 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 the the broader impact that they could have on the upcoming elections?
2: You know, Republicans had two options after losing the presidential election in Georgia, um, by the way, three times. You know, (laughs) Joe Biden won Georgia three times because we had three (laughs) recounts. And of course, you know, they lost the two runoffs. The the first option was they could do some real soul searching uh, and see that voters are increasingly turned off by their policies and tactics. Or two, they could double down on what's making them so unpopular and try to restrict voters instead. And clearly they decided not to learn anything and opted to do the latter. And that's exactly what's happening here, Ron, is that they wanna change the rules after they day loss. yeah, and, and, and let our listeners sort of in on this for a long yeah. time. I've been doing political campaigns, democratic campaigns in Georgia for 20 years. And Jennifer, I know I don't look that old, but um, you know, it's been, a, it's been, a, it's been a long time <laughs> and doing this. And so those are campaign um, years too, by the way, campaign <laughs> years and definitely playing, you know, my ball head definitely shows that wisdom. <laughs> so what's, what's happening is, is that you have a faction of the Georgia GOP, um, who said, you know what, we're going to go even further right. We're going to make it more restrictive. We're going to make it harder for people to vote in Georgia. And that's exactly what some of these GOP leaders are doing. You got to remember, we talked about this, Ron. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rudy Giuliani came down to Georgia, sat in the state capitol in a committee room and, and gave – countless fraudulent, untrue right. claims right. um of voter suppression. And at the end of the day, there was no wide voter fraud, widespread voter fraud in, in Georgia. Period. Yeah. Tens of thousands of votes were audited and um there were three recounts and, and the at the end of the day, uh democracy prevailed. Mm-hmm. But here's what here's what worries me, Ron. We're still in Georgia. While we are a blue state, we still have a Republican control led Legislature. And you do have a few Republicans who are very worried that if they don't go along with these two bills that are very, very restrictive, are totally, I I believe, um, could be deemed as unconstitutional. That they have to go along with it and they have to fall in line because they're so scared of former President Donald Trump finding someone to primary them in their elections. Because, you know, our elections in Georgia for the state legislature. And by the way, we're going to go through a very complicated redistricting process. Mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of these Republican legislators are just. Quietly going along with this suppression plan, and so we are again in Georgia going to be on the national stage when it comes to voter access and and, and IDs. And by the way, if you right now in Georgia request a, a ballot online a absentee ballot online, you do have to pre- present an ID. And that's already in place, um, but a lot of these new bills are trying to really uh, disrupt a Republican law that was created, that was led by Republicans. And since they've lost these elections, now they're trying to change those laws and change that process to ultimately try to benefit them. And that's that's the best and simplest way that I can kind of sum up what's going on
3: here. I, I don't know if I missed him using this word or not, but they're trying to disenfranchise voters. And they're trying to disenfranchise yeah. voters who are yeah. less likely to vote Republican. And we know who those voters are. They're less, also less likely to be Caucasian. They're less likely to be middle-aged. They're less likely to be a lot of things. Um, this is a clear, direct attempt to disenfranchise voters.
0: Well, you just answered the question I was going to ask you, Jennifer, oh, <laughs> which, was, <laughs> which was, you know, not just in Georgia, but we've seen, you know... There are months and months of political battles over the airwaves on every screen. And like it's fair to say uh some people there are probably taking a breather and not paying close attention to the elections just yet. I'm talking about like voters, right? So like can you help us think about why the legislature in Georgia And not just in Georgia, but around the country are trying to pass these measures now because it's not just happening in Georgia. Republicans in in state legislatures everywhere are doing exactly the same thing. But why right now?
3: Because they just lost and everybody's exhausted and nobody's paying attention. Do it now so that it's all in place and ready to roll in two years when the next House races come up and the next round of Senate race has come up um, with, this is this is an important example of why in spite of how tiring it can be everybody has to pay attention all the time. you know mm-hmm. we former Republicans I, I still keep saying we Republicans but those of us who are former Republicans as well um, had this wonderful quote from Ronald Reagan and I used to use it all the time and I don't have it memorized off the top of my head but it's about freedom, um, never being more than one generation away from extinction. And I've thought about that a lot as we've gone through these last couple of months with this whole thing that we and especially after January 6th, democracy is fragile. It is so easily lost. Freedom is so easily lost. And what happened on January 6th and what the Republican Party is attempting to do with these efforts that you're talking about in Georgia and other state legislatures across the country is that they are trying to destroy and disable democracy. And they're trying to create a system where they have ultimate total control and that's authoritarianism. That's tyranny. That is not democracy. Um, and and we have to also understand. And Mike can talk about this better than I can. How the demographics that are being strategically, intentionally targeted by these efforts as well. We are talking about people of color. We are talking about people who don't normally have a voice. We are talking about people um, for whom it's difficult to vote and engage in the pro in the democratic process to begin with. And they figured out that. If they can silence more and more of those people, it makes it easier and easier for them to forward this very authoritarian Trumpian agenda that they've developed.
0: You know, you made me think of a point that Joyce Vance just made on the episode that we released on Wednesday, which is that one of our jobs... As Americans, as as citizens in this country, is to pay attention, to read the news, to know what's going on. And yes, it's exhausting, but that is that is the responsibility um, that everybody has. It's not just you know not just political staff and people who follow the news. It's um, that's that's what comes with citizenship. So, Mike, um, you know, in addition to these laws about voting access that we're seeing across the country. Darren uh, mentioned that Georgia is about to go through a complicated redistricting process, and every other state is is about to redistrict as well as soon as the census comes out. Can you help us understand how the laws that are being passed now and the redistricting process that's about to that's about to happen could impact the direction we're heading for at least the next decade?
1: Well, I should be asking you this question because you're the redistricting <laughs> expert here.
0: Um, <laughs> We'll do do this on a separate conversation. (laughs) Maybe just let's do a summary here. And then I want to bookmark that. I actually really want to bookmark this conversation and come back to it and do a long form. Maybe it's a series. I don't know. But there's a lot to to unpack with regard to redistricting. It's
1: extraordinarily important. The redistricting process yeah. is extremely important and it's it happens once a decade, so people aren't focused, they don't understand it because it's very arcane and by the time you do get focused on it, it goes away and you don't think about it for another 10 years. So unless you you kind of think about these things like like all of us here on on the panel do, or you do it professionally, it's hard to, to keep it a top of focus about how it works and, and why it is so important. It is getting trickier. It is getting more challenging. And one of the really, I think, fascinating things about the redistricting process at this moment in time is we still remain a largely segregated country, meaning that uh, people by race and ethnicity largely live in different zip codes. So you're going to see one of the most racially polarized um, gerrymandered processes uh, in virtually every state, including places like California um, during this next process. What I will say is this, and it gets back to the previous question as well. Part of this is the Republican Party's belief that it has to kind of build build a wall to protect itself as it kind of shrinks regionally, geographically, and demographically, right? And as that happens, it does two it takes on two characteristics. It's going to start focusing on drawing lines to protect those interests through the redistricting process, but it's also, frankly, a mental recognition that it is no longer trying to broaden the base beyond that core constituency Mm. anymore. And that's extremely Mm. important. That is important. Because when that begins to stop happening, it's just a matter of time until it withers away. It's basically the first step towards irrelevance and marginalization. And I believe that process has already begun. I think 2016 was a huge step in that direction. And I think the gerrymandering process that we're going to see in a lot of states are going to really uh, have a dramatic impact and effect on this. The truth of the matter is the more that Republicans are able to be gerrymandered into their own districts, the less volatility, the less, less violence that I think we're going to see over the course of the next 10 years. And I I don't use that word Um, callously. And I'm not using it flippantly. We've talked about this a lot. I'm working on a book right now about the next two decades, right? This this idea that the next two decades will be marred by violent uprisings Mm -hmm. and the type of actions that we saw on January 6th are the beginning. They're not the end for about a 20-year cycle that the American political system is about to go through. The way these lines are drawn, the way the redistricting process actually manifests itself, is going to be directly correlate to how much tension we have in our body politic over the next, certainly 10, but probably 20 years, because it's going to be literally the the battle lines of where people are at and what type of extremist politics are going to live within those boundaries.
3: And, And that's something I wanted to, I was just about to add to for that. As much, I'm not in any way saying that gerrymandering and the process that we're about to go through is a good thing. But what will happen as a result of it, as Mike talks about how these districts will be, you know, the the Republicans are going to create their own districts. They're going to have their, it'll be very, the result of that as one election after another unfolds over the next 10 years is that there will be a very clear message to the American people who the Republican Party is. And who their candidates are. They're not, you know, they're not going. They're, it won't be watered down in, um, you know, in in general elections that you, you don't know which way it's going to go. Or like these very clear Republican districts. Go, but we'll go back to what Maya, Maya Angelou told us: when somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. It's going to be very clear now who the Republican Party is. And my hope is that as that unfolds. That um, all of those millions of people who have been voting Republican just because I'm not not a Democrat, so I vote Republican, that they will have a very clear understanding going forward of who the Republican Party is as well.
0: So before we leave this topic, I just want to go around the table here and get each of your uh, thoughts on what people across the country can do now to protect their voting rights. So... Jennifer, why don't we start with you?
3: Uh, that's a great question. The first thing is to get online and find out what legislation your, uh, your state legis- uh, legislatures are considering right now in this cycle. That's like to find out what's on what's going to be debated. What is what's on the table right now? And it's different in every state. And you know, in New Hampshire, the legislature only meets for half of the year. There's a state where I think they only meet every other year. So you, you've got to get online right now and educate yourself. And uh, where you find these efforts that are similar to the ones that we just heard about in Georgia, you have to get involved. And um, you know, you 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 have to become that educated rational voice that is writing letters to the editors and organizing people to write op-eds and making direct contact with your elected representatives the thing they fear most is losing the next election you have to make this that important to them
0: yeah mike
1: i think we need to federalize the voting rights act um, again, we need a new Voting Rights Act and we need to tie a lot of strings to the federal government um, because we cannot simply just say this is a state's rights thing and let's allow the states to handle it. We know how that ends up, okay? Historically, mm-hmm. that doesn't work well. And you see a lot of people disenfranchised and have their civil rights violated. So as part of uh, as part of the new Voting Rights Act, which I intend to be very engaged with, um, there has to be strong federal oversight. There has to be strong federal intervention, there has to be strong federal guarantees that cross state party or state state lines um, in a way that 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 is even more expansive than what we saw in the 60s legislation. Um, otherwise, like I said, the tensions, look, it, it was one thing to have, you know, black and white America in the 60s, right, where, where, where whites basically were 85% of the country and black for 15%. And we would have these struggles and a lot of white America could kind of turn from it and say, okay, well, will find it's being handled or it's not being handled, but it doesn't really affect me. We're in a very different place in America right now where the impacts of this are going to be extraordinary and deep and much more complex than they were in the 1960s, as difficult as they were. We need to take what we learned in the 60s and broaden it dramatically. Dramatically, and it's really a—it's it really this is really a foundational question for democracy. Okay, if we were looking at other countries that were suppressing other racial and ethnic groups from voting, we would consider that an outrage. Here, we just kind of like, oh well, yeah, this is kind of the same old story. And is it really happening? And what does that really mean? It is an outrage because it is an attack on democracy. It is an attack on on our own people voting. It is something we would not tolerate in any other country. But here we just kind of start to roll our eyes and say, well, that's not, it's not the same. It's kind of different here. No, it's not kind of different here. That's exactly what's happening. And it's why we cannot simply rely on the states to handle it in their own way, in their own time, with their own processes, with their own funding levels. There has to be strong federal intervention.
0: Yeah. It goes back to Ann Applebaum's point about American exceptionalism being part of the problem because we think that it can't happen here or that it doesn't matter if it happens here, right? That's right. Theron, what about you?
2: First and foremost, I agree with Mike. Not only do we need a new Voting Rights Act in this country, we need to name it the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Mm. And I know that that is is in motion. Uh, And, you know, I... As you mentioned in my intro, I had the opportunity and really honored to work for Congressman Lewis. And one of the last things I spoke with him about uh, days before he passed away was was voting. And making sure that people have that right and have that access that he bled and ultimately died uh, fighting for. And I just think the second thing, to Jennifer's point, just, you know, we as Americans, we've got to do our part. Please, please go online. Check your status. If you've moved, if you've gotten married and you've hyphenated your name, uh, make sure you're not purged off the voter list. Um, making sure that you know all your uh, information is correct. Don't just wait until election time uh, to, to do so. And so I think just to, uh, for the sake of time, I agree with everything that Jennifer and, and Mike expressed earlier.
0: Theron, um, so before I let you all go, where can people find you on the internet?
2: Uh, I am on Twitter at Theron Johnson. Um, you know, Facebook, the same. Instagram is Theron L. Johnson. And my website is paramountconsults.com. Jennifer?
3: At NH Jennifer on? Twitter. Oh gosh, I thought it was... I am on Twitter at NH Jennifer. I'm on Instagram too, but I just posted pictures of my incredibly adorable dogs there.
1: (laughs) Mike? I'm on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. All right.
0: And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Mike, Theron, and Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you to everyone who is at home or on the go for listening. We have a new email address, so if you have questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, it would help tremendously if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. This is Politicology. I'll see you in the next episode.